Yes! That is that Earth, Wind, and Fire. You got to groove to it a little just, bit. Are we just starting with Earth, Wind, and Fire? Yes! This is the start. Okay. Okay. How come? Wait, listen. Happy Earth, Wind, and Fire Day, Kai! Wow, I had I had no idea. Yeah, it's I, Earth, Wind, okay, and Fire Day. Good. I, did, I didn't know that. It's uh, and wow. now good you, for you do. For knowing that. Absolutely, it's the twenty first day of September. Twenty first day of September. Not quite through the night, but yes, we're going to get there. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes we will. Hey everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart. New theme music today, Making Today Make Sense is what we do. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I am Kimberly Adams, and I am so excited because it's Earth, Wind, and Fire Day. Yay! Um, but it is also What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, the day in the week where we answer listener questions. If you've got one about the economy, business, or tech, email us. Make me smart at marketplace.org. Leave us a voicemail if you like. Our number is 508-UB-SMART. Before we get started today, though, have to do a carbon dioxide correction. I was totally, oh. totally wrong. Carbon oh. dioxide is added to beer at an industrial scale to add the carbonation. Uh, home brewing, actually, in small quantities, you can get away with that amount of carbon dioxide that comes from the fermentation. But that's why the CO2 uh, shortage is a big deal for beer. And I just flat did not know that. I thought it was like natural fermentation and thus carbonation, but I was wrong. Well, Just who told to you other than the entire internet, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> well, the entire internet, a couple of people in my Twitter feed, and also another public radio program that airs on a lot of public radio stations whose initials are Morning Edition, did a minute and a half on it today. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so well, this is the point of the podcast, right? We're all getting smarter together. So Exactly. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. And so now we all go. know. So then that soda stream okay. thing would actually work. Right. Right. Exactly. We need to talk to a brewer. Exactly. Don't you like, haven't you interviewed a guy who runs a beer company a couple of times? You should ask him if that would work. Uh, well, great talk at, at, at Stone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you should ask know. him. Would that know. work? He listens every now and then. All right. Well, we'll yeah. see. We shall see if I shall right. pursue that. Anyway, let us begin. <laughs> okay, let's get let to the begin. listener questions. Our first question comes to us via email from VJ in Georgia. He wants to know, I have a two-part question, or okay. I should say, his questions come in two parts. I have a two-part question about inflation and Fed policy. There's a lot of talk about the Fed raising interest rates, but almost none about their plan to reduce their balance sheet by $47.5 billion from May and $95 billion starting in September. So my yes. questions are, has the QE, quantitative easing, unwinding started as planned, and how will this help lower inflation? Kai, hmm. I think you're going to have to first explain what that question means to most people. Yes, I will. So let's remember <laughs> that back in the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve wanting to lower interest rates beyond functionally the zero that it had, it had put them at, and also at the beginning of the pandemic when the Federal Reserve wanted to lower interest rates below the zero it had put them at, right? I mean, you can't really go negative rates. Yes, you can, but that's a whole different podcast. But the Fed really wanted to goose the economy, and they were already at what is called the zero lower bound, right? So Ben Bernanke in 2008, and then again Jay Powell in uh, 2020, did this thing called quantitative easing. They went out into the marketplace and bought up 
literally billions and trillions, the Fed's balance sheet at one point this year was $9 trillion worth of treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And when they bought those uh, uh, securities, Jay Powell went to the computer in his office, the very special Fed share computer, and created a trillion dollars worth of money and plugged that out into the economy, right? And thus lubricated the economy, provided liquidity, and so there was enough money to save the economy from desperation in 2020 when the pandemic hit and also in 2008 when um, Ben Bernanke did the same thing with the financial crisis. So that is quantitative easing, lowering interest rates, making money more available so that the economy can be lubricated. Now, with inflation at 8.3% as a headline number in this economy, the Fed is doing what it's called quantitative tightening. So not only is the Fed raising interest rates, as it did today, right, another uh, three quarters of a percentage point to 3% to three and a quarter percent, but it is also unwinding its balance sheet, okay? It is not, and that is called quantitative tightening. It is not selling off bonds. It is merely not reinvesting the proceeds when those bonds mature, right? Because the Fed buys 10-year notes, 20-year notes, 30-year notes, whatever. And when those notes mature, right, when they age out, the Fed is simply not reinvesting the proceeds. And by mm -hmm. doing that, it is functionally not adding more money to the economy. In fact, it's withdrawing money from the economy, and it is doing it now at an increased pace. So that's the basics. To VJ's question, mm -hmm. part number one. Yes, quantitative easing unwinding has started as planned. They started with $40 billion in May per month. They have kicked it up to $95 billion at the beginning of this month. That is per month unwinding its balance sheet. Obviously, when you've got a $9 trillion balance sheet, doing it even at $95 billion a month is going to take a while. So we're going to be unwinding the Fed's balance sheet for a very long time. Number one. Number two, how does that lower inflation? Well, as I said, they are not reinvesting the proceeds. Thus, that is to say the money is not going into the economy. They're, in fact, taking it out. And boom, longer rates will hopefully, Jay Powell says in his fever dreams, long rates will uh, uh, start to start to go up. And, and that's kind of where we are. And the wonders is that reasonably of clear. It was, and the wonders of podcasting okay. technology right. mean that anybody who needs to can also rewind back if you need to listen to that one more time through right. to catch it. Right, right, and right. That's totally right. fine. <laughs> you bet. You betcha. All right, so let's move on after that one. It's uh, Kyle in California. Here we go. Hey, Kyle and Kimberly. This is Kyle Hayes from East Bell, California. I want you to make me smart on why so many members of Congress are able to participate in the stock market with regards to the policy decisions that they make, either them or their spouses. This seems like a lot of questionable activity, and I want to know why this is legal and why more people are not making us think about it. Oh boy, <laughs> questionable <laughs> is a Ms. Adams, generous adjective. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, questionable is quite a generous adjective to use to describe this behavior. There's been a lot of reporting about members of Congress trading stocks at unbelievably serendipitous times uh, just before stock prices change dramatically yeah. or their spouses changing <clears throat> trading stocks right before prices change dramatically often trading stocks related to committees on which they serve in the house or the senate and they are actually dictating the policies that then affect the price swings uh, of said stocks look kai and i don't <laughs> get to trade individual stocks. Yeah. 
like it's against the rules yeah. for us because we cover these companies and it's considered a conflict of interest. Um, why is it not a conflict of interest for members of Congress? Because they make their own rules. Congress regulates Congress. They've got some, you know, bounds around them based on the Constitution, but for the most part, their sort of moral and ethical rules are set within mm -hmm. within the bounds of Congress. So when you have people with a lot of information and a lot of information upon which they can make money, it's a pretty uh, strong incentive to not put handcuffs on yourself to make money off of those things, no matter how yeah. uh, noble of a person you may be. So it is legal because members of Congress have not imposed stricter limits on themselves. And yes, there is a potential conflict of interest, but you know there are some rules in place to at least minimize the conflicts. So there's the Stock Act, which was passed in 2012, to curtail the use of uh, insider information to trade stocks. And that requires the dis disclosure of any transaction by lawmakers or their relatives valued at $1,000 or more within 45 days. However, even when they are disclosing these things, um, it's not they're, they're not necessarily consequences attached to it, right? And mm -hmm. if you find out 45 days later, it doesn't necessarily give everybody else the leg up either, right? So um, yep. the New York Times recently had an amazing piece on this, looking at the scale of this issue, and found that over a three-year period, more than 3,700 trades reported by lawmakers from both parties posed potential conflicts of interest between their public responsibilities and their private finances. Another one, Business Insider, reported that 72 members of Congress violated the Stock Act, <laughs> just ignored it, mm -hmm. by making their disclosures late, inaccurate, or not at all. And so now there is a push to do more. Several bills pending in Congress, including legislation that would require uh, members to put individual stocks in a blind trust. We'll see how that goes. Again, there's an active disincentive uh, by you know members of Congress because they're making a lot of money. Off of these trades it's it's absolutely scandalous absolutely scandalous <sighs> yeah I, I mean there's no, way, there's no way to put it and and that is not a uh, non that is not a partisan thing that is not a you know no, I've lost my not, news judgment it thing. it's just freaking scandalous. partisan yeah. bipartisan uh, exploitation of the loopholes all yeah. right let's go yeah. to Pete in Long Beach hey all this is Pete in Long Beach I had a question about the Inflation Reduction Act. I know that yeah. as part of this, there was uh, negotiated a minimum corporate tax, and I wondered if that had anything to do with the global corporate minimum tax ah. that Secretary of Treasury Yellen was trying to negotiate about a year ago. Thanks for making me smart. I yeah, great question that. because because it's yeah it's it's uh, really easy to get confused on that. So the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, did include a fifteen percent corporate uh, minimum tax uh, in this country for American corporations, right? Uh, the catch, of course, is that um, companies have really smart tax lawyers and will definitely find ways to work around it, right? I mean, we've all heard the stories about Amazon, for instance, paying zero in corporate income tax for however long it's been around, or I don't even know. Uh, but there are 
you know, many, many companies like that. The global, the cor- sorry, the corporate minimum tax uh, in the IRA was meant to take care of that. Companies are going to find loopholes. Let's just say that, right? Now, there is another minimum corporate tax on uh, the agenda for the Biden White House. It is a thing that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen feels very strongly about. It is a 15% global corporate minimum tax. And that is to make sure that companies cannot um, jurisdiction shop, cannot tax rate shop, cannot go to Ireland where corporate tax rates are much lower than they are here and thus get beneficial treatment there and not get profits, profits and proceeds taxed in the United States. There is something like 136 or 137 countries who have agreed to it. The United States, despite being the big champion of that global corporate minimum tax, is not one of them. Thank you, Senate of the United States. So, great question. <laughs> Two separate issues, U.S. corporate minimum tax, which is in effect as part of the IRA, but will be worked around by companies because they can. Number two, the global corporate minimum tax, which is not yet in force, but Janet Yellen is is still working on it. It's she, it's she actually, I mean, I've asked her about this. She thinks it's a very big deal. Very big deal. Gosh, you're go. being so cynical about politics today. I'm shocked. Shocked. Here comes the next question from Rushi. Here's what he says. It's an email. I hear often of our aging power grid. Can you make me smart on what it would take to modernize our grid, what it would look like, how much it would cost, and who would be responsible to get it started, i.e. Congress or private industry? Also, another good question. These are really good questions, by the way. Yeah. um, Y'all are making all of us smart. I mean, I guess it depends uh, on what you mean by modernize the grid, because that means different things to different people. Because, I mean... In California, where you are, Kai, I imagine modernizing the grid would be just burying the power lines. That's not super high tech, uh, but it would make a big difference in things. And in a lot of places, just putting your power lines below ground uh, Mm -hmm. would modernize your grid and make it more resilient. Uh, In other places, it means switching to renewable energy and having batteries to store that renewable energy so you could use it at night. And so it it depends. Um, But... The Biden administration's goal, at least when they think about modernizing the grid, is to have a carbon emissions free grid by 2035. And that is going to take a ton of money and a ton of political will. Now, there was a down payment on this $2.5 billion to modernize and expand the power grid in the infrastructure bill. It's not the infrastructure bill. I got to stop calling it that. I spent mm-hmm, years mm-hmm. of my life as a political reporter talking <laughs> about infrastructure bills, and it is an infrastructure law. It really happened. Infrastructure law. Okay. There was $2.5 billion to modernize the grid in the infrastructure law that is going to go towards grid reliability and allow new clean power onto the grid, um, but to actually create a nationwide carbon free grid. We're not talking about billions, we're talking about trillions of dollars that it needs. And then on the second part, uh, political will, that is going to need a combination of federal action, state actions, electrical grids are shared jurisdictions between federal governments, state governments, sometimes local governments get in the mix. Um, and then there are, you know, some public-private partnerships, especially in some of these renewable energy uh, endeavors, like where there will be a public-private partnership of government and private industry working to like build a wind farm or to build right. a solar panel park or something like that. Um, 
And on the state level, you know, there are a lot of state public utility commissions who are slow to act on this mm -hmm. because the people paying mm -hmm. the bills, you know, don't want to see their electricity bill go up in the short term to green the grid in the long term. And if you happen to be right. living in a state where a lot of people don't believe in human cause, human caused climate change, that argument's going to be even harder. And so these costs are real. Um, and especially in a high inflation environment where energy prices are pretty volatile, it's a hard argument to make, but it's something that's going to have to happen if, if we want to limit uh, global warming, you know, even though a lot of it's kind of beyond help. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there's always gone. There's always hope. There's always hope. Listen, there's we switched always roles. hope, but it's like. We, we did like a freaky Friday right here. We Holy did. Cow. We Let's did. I'm, All I'm right. We're going to Let's get out of here. We're going to go. We're going to save the last one. We're going to save the last one. Oh, it's my Earth, goodness. We're done. Day. Mm. Yay. <laughs> okay. That is it for us today on Earth, Wind, and Fire Day. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow with the news and some smiles. In the meanwhile, keep sending us your questions. They were really good this week. Our email is makemesmart at marketplace.org or leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART. I can't believe you didn't know about Earth, Wind, and Fire Day. I did not know about Earth, Wind, and Fire Day. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera. Olivia Zhao is our intern. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's show was engineered by Jake Cherry, Ben Tolliday, and Daniel Ramirez, who used to do the job that Jake does, composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Bridget Bonner. Yeah. Hmm. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.